Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, please let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. In the light of truth and in the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Morning, everyone. Our uh, call to worship this morning is an affirmation by Starhawk. Community means strength. We are all longing to go home to some place we have never been, a place half remembered and half envisioned. We can only catch glimpses, we can only catch glimpses of from time to time, community. Somewhere there are people to whom we can speak with passion without having the words catch in our throats. Somewhere a circle of hands will open to receive us. Eyes will light up as we enter. Voices will celebrate with us whenever we come into our own power. Community means strength. Strength that joins our strength to do the work that needs to be done. Arms to hold us when we falter a circle of healing, a circle of friends, someplace where we can be free. Some people do wonder, when we have people in the room with roots and practices in all the major world religions, including secular humanism, atheism, including neo-paganism, what is it that holds us together? One of the things that holds this congregation together and guides it as it moves through to the future is its mission. We wrote it on the wall and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. For our reading this morning, I have a poem from Hafiz, a 14th century Sufi mystic. It happens all the time in heaven, and someday it will begin to happen again on earth. That men and women who are married, and men and men who are lovers, and women and women who give each other light, often will get down on their knees, and while so tenderly holding their lover's hand, with tears in their eyes, will sincerely speak, saying, My dear, how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? Now is the time in the service when we breathe together, where we become quiet inside, where we speak to God as we understand God, or listen, or hear our inner wisdom, or just follow our breath in and out. Let us enter the silence together.
Every social movement for change has its language, its songs, its gestures, its history, its in-jokes, its slang, its assumptions, its infighting, and its sense of what's wrong with the world. This morning, in honor of coming out weekend, I'm going to talk about uh, the culture of drag. I'm going to give it a salute for being one of the big-haired, heavily made-up mothers of the LGBTQ freedom movement. The songs of the drag show have so many functions. One is a function of just raw expression of the sorrow and rage at the injustice of a culture that um, is very blind to its own blind spots, especially about maleness, femaleness, heterosexuality, and homosexuality. Some of the songs express um, joy in having the freedom to be who you are, and some uh, talk about the power that you feel once you get rooted in who you really are and your authenticity. But I Will Survive has all of those. At first I was afraid. I was petrified. Kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. Then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong and I grew strong. And I learned how to get along. I will survive. It's got everything. And so it never gets old. I mean, yeah, it gets old, but. But there's a reason why it got old. Um, For those of you who don't know, drag is when cis men, C-I-S men, that means men who have been born biologically male, when cis men dress up as women for the purposes of entertainment and self-expression. Sort of. Sometimes they'll dress up as parodies of femaleness, Nobody really wants to, in the drag world, nobody wants to look like a, just a regular, normal, everyday, average, on-the-street woman. You want to look fabulous. And sometimes you want to mock the elements of femininity that our culture seems to value. The, the big hair, the big eyelashes, the big eyes, the high heels, the curves. Some people in the drag culture dress in torn punk clothes with just a couple of items of female-identified clothing, and sometimes there are a satin dress and pearls with a full beard. There are lots of different ways to do drag. That's the full beard kind is camp, campy drag, then there's pageant drag, and then there's punk drag, and there's all kinds of different ways of expressing yourself. And sometimes drag can be cis women, women who were biologically born as women, dressing as men and expressing themselves in ways that our culture normally identifies as male, masculine. They'll, you know, look like Joey from the hood. You know, they'll, they'll put on the whiskers and, and look at you sideways and say, how are you doing? 
It's got to be interesting to men to see what women notice as male and, and imitate. <laughs> RuPaul, one of the most famous drag queens in the world, said, we're born naked and the rest is drag. In a sociology PhD thesis by a woman named Elizabeth Kaminsky, she analyzes drag culture as a community. It's an oppositional culture organized both to imitate and mock the dominant culture. In the bad old days, which ended like, I don't know, last month, you could get thrown out of your family for being gay. In the early 70s, when you came out, you were in danger of being put in a mental institution. It was still a pathology to be gay. If your parents wanted you locked up, they could lock you up. About 40% of street kids now are gay and transgender. If you're gay as a teenager, you are three times more likely to commit suicide it still does not look like a fabulous lifestyle to people who grow up in places like everywhere in Texas but here. <laughs> a chosen family becomes your best option. So you choose your family. Sometimes drag queens will take in younger men and teach them the art of drag and drag performance. Sometimes those are called houses. You'll have the house of extravaganza or the house of Givenchy, or a lot of the houses are named after designers. And that can be your family. And um, in New York City, they used to have, I think they probably still do, drag balls where... Each house would, would walk or would perform for the prize. And there were lots of different categories of drag that you could perform in and get the prize, and the houses would vie with one another for these prizes. And in a drag family, you know, it's like a regular family. There's, there's love and drama and betrayal and um, members of the family who make you nuts and cattiness and jealousy and... It's just a regular family. Your workplace might have its own language, its own jargon. Most families have their own language, their own jargon. Some of us know a few of the words of drag language, but that doesn't mean we are inside the culture. It just means we are looking admiringly from the outside. Some of y'all might be inside. You don't have to raise your hands. And not all gay people know about drag. This is important for um, straight people to know. And another thing that's important is that drag and transgender are two different things. Transgender is a person who's born identified as one gender who feels inside like another and begins to express themselves as the one that's true inside. And mostly um, transgendered women would like to just look like regular women. There's not the exaggerated hair and makeup that a drag queen has. Uh, drag queens often are men who are happy to stay men. They just dress as women for performance and for self-expression. 
And some say they would never dress in drag if they weren't getting paid for it. And others say I would dress in drag at least once a week because it just makes me feel strong and true to myself. And of course, every individual is different. That is true no matter what community you're in. So drag culture, a drag show, is for gay people. It expresses community. It creates a free space where you can express yourself and experiment and not have the, um, have to apologize and not have the judgment of an outsider. You'll have plenty of judgment from the insiders, of course. But the outside world doesn't have to judge you in the free space. It, a show expresses, um, as I said, the outrage, the grief. It evokes sympathy. There's humor. There's solidarity. We're in this together. And there's agency. Here's what you can do. I feel strong. I know how to get along. I can help you. But the drag show was also for straight people to introduce the straight world to the gay culture or to give people who are questioning a place where they can relax a little and start to act a little gay and see how it feels. Every oppressed social group needs its free space, needs a space where you don't have to explain anything where you don't have to apologize for anything, where, where you, you know the words to your music, where you know the language, where, um, where you can just relax and deal only with the slings and arrows of the insiders instead of the insiders and the outsiders. Drag queens have to be tough, and it helps to be funny, when you grow up getting beaten up as a child, you get to where you can either fight or take a beating, or both. And a lot of drag queens, if you hear the story of their childhood, there'll be a lot of bullying in it. The LGBTQ revolution started a long time ago, but one of its particular uh, starting moments with a firecracker that really lit everything up was in 1969 at a place called the Stonewall Inn. This is part of the history of the LGBT uh, civil rights movement. And almost everybody's heard of the Stonewall Inn. Here's what happened. This was a place where uh, gay men, gay women, women dressed as men, men dressed as women, everybody was together ha dancing and having drinks in a in a bar that was owned by the mafia who didn't care. And it kept getting raided by the police because in 1969, homosexuality was uh, a sin and a crime and a pathology. And so the police could raid with impunity and gay bashing was a sport for people, including the cops, and uh, not just verbal bashing. We're talking about... Uh, really rough treatment by the police, and nobody would say anything because it was more shameful to be gay or to dress as a woman than it was to beat up somebody uh, who wasn't fighting back. But this one night, there was a raid, and 
Accounts vary about what happened, but what started was a riot. What started was not a peaceful, we-shall-overcome riot. It was a violent riot, which, it seems, is part of almost every social change movement at some point or another. The police raided, but the patrons wouldn't run. Maybe it was a butch lesbian who threw the first punch at a policeman. That is one person's view. Uh, Maybe it was a drag queen who, with a brick in her hand, um, who broke the first window. Nobody can really agree, but what happened was people poured out on the streets fighting with the police, and the police ended up losing control of that particular part of Greenwich Village. And after that, there were action teams made up amongst the gay and straight allies in Greenwich Village, and there were safe zones. And it turned out gradually that the police, um, I'm not going to say would leave the gay folk alone, but I am going to say would be more subtle in their opposition. Social change happens when a group has a collective identity. They know this is who we are, and we're developing our identity. And we get a social action frame, uh, a frame by which we see what's wrong. We have language for what's wrong. We have language for what we're going to do about it. And then we feel energized with each other because we're not alone anymore. We have our songs. We have our language. We have our sense of us. We have our sense of what's wrong. We have a frame about what needs to happen. One thing the sociologists haven't talked about that I have been able to find, but something I've noticed, and so I'm sure they've noticed it too, is that for social change to happen, there have to be two, at least, um, arms of the social movement. There has to be the respectability arm, and there has to be the scary arm. You know, the scary arm of the women's suffrage movement was... um, what were the women who chained themselves to the White House fence, who got thrown in jail, who went on hunger strikes, who were beaten by the police, who were force-fed in order to not have them die in prison and become martyrs. Their leader was a woman named Alice Paul, and they were violent rabble-rousers. <laughs> and then the respectable women who would say to the legislators, oh, gosh, it's just so too bad that they are being so, so violent and unladylike. <laughs> but if you don't talk to us, you're going to have to talk to them. <laughs> Carrie Chapman Catt was the leader of that group. And there is no way any legislator would have listened to Carrie Chapman Catt without Alice Paul being in the wings. Martin Luther King was a guy you could talk to. You could invite him to the White House. President Johnson sat down with him. And the only reason that happened was because Malcolm X was over here being scary. And Martin Luther King could say, gosh, uh, it's a shame about that violence and language that they're using. If you don't deal with me, you're going to have to deal with them. I'm pretty sure he never said that out loud because he was a wise and a good politician. Um... And there were many very respectable gay organizations that were working for change in the 60s. The civil rights movement was in full swing. The gay folks were trying uh, 
nicely to get their point across. Going to be nice, going to be respectable, because everybody says, oh, no, 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 don't be mean. Don't say mean things. We're doing this with the Black Lives Matter movement as we speak. They're the scary ones, and they're the respectable ones. You're not going to even listen to the respectable ones unless the scary ones do stuff like take over this or that or disrupt this or that or stop traffic on I-35 and everybody can go, oh, it's so, goodness, that's really wild. I can't believe they did that. How about dealing with us instead? So the gay folk who were working respectably in the culture for change got listened to because if they didn't, there was a, you know, a kick line of six foot four drag queens in size 14 shoes that were mad (laughs) and tough and knew how to take a beating and give one, by the way, and you were going to deal with them if you didn't deal with us. I say us because I always identify with the respectable ones. (laughs) But it takes everybody to get it done. One of the things that drag shows do is they make you question, what is gender actually? Is gender something that's biological or is is it something that's cultural? And the answer is yes, both. There's a wonderful drag song called What Makes a Man a Man. And you, you see this woman in front of you and she says, I live with my mother in an apartment in the towers and we sew together, but I sew better than she. And then the wig comes off. And the chorus is What Makes a Man a Man. And then the pads come out in the second verse. And then the other pads come out in the third verse. And finally, there's a man standing there in the verse that says, I change sex before your eyes. What makes a man a man? What drag culture does is it shines a light on the fact that whereas there are powerful biological drivers that determine gender uh, activities, that's not all that determines gender. And much of gender is a performance, a socialized, cultural made-up performance. I remember my mother being my gender coach. She would say, when I was taking driving lessons, so I'm 16, I'm turning the wheel like this, and she says, oh, Maggie, um, delicately now, Del- like this. It's more ladylike. When a girl laughs, ha, 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 like that, someone will say, oh, no, 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 like this. (laughs) Don't open your mouth so wide. Don't show your teeth. I remember in sixth grade getting girl running lessons. We were running around, and this one girl who was more developed than the rest of us, she goes, oh, no, no, this is how girls run. I'm sure you all remember getting gender lessons. Boys don't cry. Boys don't do this. Boys don't do that. Girls don't. Be ladylike. Be ladylike. My mother said, don't beat them in ping pong. They don't like when you beat them. A drag show mocks and gives tribute to the beautiful performances of being male and female. I want to end by singing a song that I wrote for Coming Out Weekend. 
It's called The Beauty in You. It invites you at the end of the song to stand up. And uh, not just stand up if you're gay. It just says, stand up and we'll stand with you. So if you stand at the end of the song, um, you're just saying solidarity. Stand 
Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. And I will end our service the way RuPaul ends his drag race show. Everybody say love. Love. Everybody say love. Love. Take that love and ride it on out of here and spread it around. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.